Good afternoon. My name is Brian Parks. I serve as the senior pastor here at Covenant Hope Church. And let me add my welcome to those of you who are perhaps new or maybe haven't visited very many times. We're so glad you're here. So glad you've joined us. What should someone do when they're attacked for being a Christian? Now, I, I have to confess that oftentimes when I'm attacked, or maybe even when I just feel attacked, my first response is to defend myself. And oftentimes I do that in unhelpful ways, perhaps you could even say ungodly ways. At times, I'm not quick to listen. But there is good ways and bad ways to defend ourselves and our faith. There are godly ways and there are ungodly ways. The Apostle Paul often told the churches in which he taught to imitate me as I imitate Christ. Now today in our passage, we're going to learn from Paul what he's learned from Christ, how to honor God and defend our faith in Christ as we live in a world that can be oh so hostile. Last week we saw Paul make his way from the Asian coast all the way to Jerusalem with two important stops along the way. And in both of those places, the Christians that he gathered together with spent time learning from him. But then, most notably, Luke tells us that they urged him in the spirit not to go to Jerusalem because they knew that he would be persecuted there. There was even a prophet from the Jerusalem area who came down to Caesarea and prophesied that he would be persecuted. But it was the spirit who had set Paul on this journey back to Jerusalem, and he would not be dislodged from it. Paul concluded that though these brothers and sisters in the Lord had accurately discerned what would happen to him there, that the Lord still wanted him to go. Paul's journey was like Jesus' journey toward Jerusalem at the end of his life, toward danger. Turn with me in your Bibles if you have them or you can turn in your bulletin. The entire text is printed there in your bulletin as well. We have a long text to go through this afternoon. We're starting in chapter 21 of Acts. Go to 21, chapter 21 of Acts, and we're starting at verse 17. And we're going to go all the way to 22, verse 29. Now, I'm not going to read all of this text though I'm going to teach you from all of it. I'm going to stop in the middle and summarize one bit and then continue on. So you'll just have to listen and follow along with me. But I want you to follow carefully and remember as you read what exactly happened to Paul because we're going to learn from him. Acts chapter 21, verse 17. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James, and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, You see, brother, 
How many thousands there are among the Jews of those who have believed? They are all zealous for the law. And they have been told about you, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you've come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took them in, and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple, giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. Now I'm going to stop right there and tell you that Paul was caught by the Jews in the temple as he was carrying out some of the regulations for this Nazarite vow, and they were angry. They tried to kill him, and it was only Roman soldiers who came and broke up the mob and rescued Paul and brought him to their barracks. And when they reached the steps of their barracks, Paul asked permission of the Roman soldier to speak to the Jews. And so he turned around, and we're going to pick up in chapter 22, verse 1. This is Paul's speech. Brothers and fathers, hear the defense that I now make before you. And when they heard that he was addressing them in the Hebrew language, they became even more quiet. And he said, I am a Jew, born in Tarsus in Cilicia, but brought up in this city, educated at the feet of Gamaliel, according to the strict manner of the law of our fathers, being zealous for God as all of you are this day. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering to prison both men and women, as the high priest and the whole council of elders can bear me witness. From then, I received letters to the brothers, and I journeyed toward Damascus to take those also who were there and bring them in bonds to Jerusalem to be punished. As I was on my way and drew near to Damascus, about noon a great light from heaven suddenly shone around me, and I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. Now those who were with me saw the light, but did not understand the voice of the one who was speaking to me. And I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, rise and go into Damascus, and there you will be told all that is appointed for you to do. And since I could not see because of the brightness of that light, I was led by the hand by those who were with me and came into Damascus. And one Ananias, a devout man according to the law, well spoken of by all the Jews who lived there, came to me and standing by me said to me, Brother Saul, receive your sight. And at that very hour I received my sight and saw him. And he said, The God of our fathers appointed you to know his will, to see the righteous one, and to hear a voice from his mouth. For you will be a witness for him to everyone of what you have seen and heard. And now, why do you wait? 
Rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. When I had returned to Jerusalem and was praying in the temple, I fell into a trance and I saw him saying to me, make haste and get out of Jerusalem quickly because they will not accept your testimony about me. And I said, Lord, they themselves know that in one synagogue after another, I imprisoned and beat those who believed in you. And when the blood of Stephen, your witness, was being shed, I myself was standing by and approving and watching over the garments of those who killed him. And he said to me, go, for I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Up to this word, they listened to him. And then they raised their voices and said, away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and flinging dust into the air, the tribune ordered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging to find out why they were shouting against him like this. But when they had stretched him out for the whips, Paul said to the centurion who was standing by, Is it lawful for you to flog a man who's a Roman citizen and uncondemned? And when the centurion heard this, he went to the tribune and said to him, what are you about to do? For this man is a Roman citizen. So the tribune came and said to him, tell me, are you a Roman citizen? And he said, yes. The tribune answered, I bought the citizenship for a large sum. Paul said, but I'm a citizen by birth. So those who were about to examine him withdrew from him immediately. And the tribune also was afraid for he realized that Paul was a Roman citizen and that he had bound him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, with the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. We're going to consider the passage this afternoon in three different sections of text and see how the Lord is teaching us through Paul's example to defend your faith in Christ with honorable actions, truthful testimony, and wise choices. Defend your faith in Christ with honorable actions, truthful testimony, and wise choices. Now I need to make something very clear, it's important before we proceed. When we defend our faith in Christ, doing the right thing does not guarantee success as we might gauge it. In two of the three particular ways that we see Paul defending his faith in this passage, the non-Christians around him do not respond favorably. They respond violently. But the response of others is not how we decide what the Lord wants us to do. No. So you too might learn from Paul today. You might begin imitating him and defending yourself and yet find yourself in deeper and deeper trials and tribulations. Doing the right thing in the Lord's eyes only guarantees that we please the Lord himself. And that is the most important goal of all. Now, first in this passage, we see Paul defending his faith in Christ with honorable actions. And we see that in verses 17 through 36, both his actions and then the response of the Jews around him. 
It had been years since Paul had visited Jerusalem, just before he left on his third missionary journey. And while he was spreading the gospel in faraway lands and planting churches among the Gentiles, the church in Jerusalem had continued to grow as well. James, the brother of Jesus, was still the leader of the Jerusalem church. And when Paul arrived here in our passage back in Jerusalem and gave the report about what God had done through his ministry among the Gentiles, they rejoiced. They were so delighted. And so after glorifying God is what it says in our passage for what God had done through Paul, they immediately shifted the conversation and began to share with Paul a problem that he would have to deal with there in Jerusalem. There were thousands of Jews who had trusted in Christ over the years, who were then a part of the church there in Jerusalem, and they still obeyed the Old Testament law. Those laws that had been given to Moses way back in the book of Exodus in the Old Testament. In fact, these Jewish Christians were zealous for these laws. That's what James tells Paul. But the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem were being told a lie about Paul. The rumor was that when Paul had evangelized Jews in those faraway Gentile lands all around the Mediterranean basin, he had then taught them to stop obeying the laws of Moses. But that wasn't true. That wasn't a part of Paul's ministry. And so you and I need to think carefully here about the relationship between the law and the gospel. Paul taught the gospel. The gospel message which says that we're justified before God, we're forgiven of our sin, we're counted righteous by him simply by repenting of our sin and believing in the Lord Jesus. And though there was then freedom after that for Jews to keep the Old Testament laws, if they were Jews and those had been their customs that they had grown up with, they could do that as long as they understood that they had been born again apart from obeying the law. It wasn't the law that had gotten them saved. It was Jesus working through the Spirit in their hearts and only through faith in Jesus. The Jewish Christian leaders in Jerusalem would have taught the same thing about salvation. James and the elders and they too understood that keeping the Old Testament law was a matter of freedom. We know that from back in Acts chapter 15 when there was a council that Paul and Barnabas and Peter were at. And they all decided, this is in the immediate aftermath of Gentiles becoming Christians outside of Jerusalem. They decided that the gospel was a gospel of faith in Christ alone. That Gentiles didn't have to become Jews first in order to be saved by Jesus. In fact, that's why James mentions in our passage here this letter that they had sent out to the Gentiles to say, we only want you to keep these regulations. And we believe that they were keeping those regulations because they were in mixed churches, Jews and Gentiles. And they were encouraging the Gentiles to be considerate of their Jewish brothers and sisters in the Lord. 
who were keeping the Old Testament laws. After all, the Jews who lived in Moses' day were also not justified by obeying the law either. The law never claimed to make anyone perfectly righteous. Jews had always been justified and counted righteous by repenting of their sin and believing the promises of God, just like Abraham in chapter 15 of Genesis, where he believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. The law of Moses, given hundreds of years later after Abraham served other purposes. And I don't have time to go into all of those this afternoon, but suffice it to say that the law could never justify someone. So for Paul, if a Jew became a Christian, it was fine that they were circumcised. It was fine if they wanted to obey the Old Testament food laws as a custom. It was okay if they wanted to circumcise their children as long as it was simply an ethnic custom. And if a Gentile became a Christian, Paul would argue that there was no need to be circumcised for them. No need to obey the food laws, which perhaps their fellow Jewish church members were obeying. There was no need for them to do that. I want you to think about what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Turn there with me just briefly. 1 Corinthians chapter 7. He says this. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. For neither circumcision counts for anything nor uncircumcision, but keeping the commandments of God. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. I have a pastor friend who went to preach in a Presbyterian church, and you may know something about Presbyterian churches, they oftentimes will, the pastors will wear an academic robe, a big black robe. I, in fact, have done, have preached in a big black academic robe in a Presbyterian church. And this pastor friend of mine went to this church and they handed him the robe and said, here, you can put on the robe. And he said to them, do I have to put on the robe? And they said, no, it's not a requirement. And his reply was, okay, then I'll put on the robe. Do you understand what I'm explaining to you? If they were to make the robe a demand, a requirement to please God, then he would have refused because he believes in salvation by Christ alone. But if they simply say this is a freedom that we take, it's a custom of ours, and he was willing to do it. The same thing is true when it came to these Old Testament laws and Paul. Before Paul became 
But Paul, here in Jerusalem, was being discredited by these lies about what he taught regarding the law and the gospel. And so James and Paul agreed that the way he could demonstrate that he wasn't opposed to obeying the Old Testament laws was by him taking a Jewish vow for ritual purification, which is mentioned in the book of Numbers, chapter 6. You can go and read there about it. It was called a Nazarite vow. Paul would do that for himself, and he'd also pay the expenses of the four other men who had taken the vow as well. Now, the second half of verse 24, here in chapter 21 of Acts, is the outcome that James and Paul hoped would come from him doing this. It says, Thus all will know that there's nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. And of course, then James recounted the Jerusalem Council's decision about what the, how the Gentiles should live to please Jesus. If they repented and trusted in Christ, the Gentiles were considered brothers and sisters in Christ, full-fledged members of the people of God. And that was radical. Now Paul immediately did all that James and the elders agreed and went into the temple to give the offering for each one of them. Now, why would Paul do this if it wasn't required of him? I think you know, perhaps, based on my explanation. Before Paul became a Christian, he believed that he was justified by the law. But the gospel had taught him that Christ had fulfilled the law and he should no longer consider it the way to be accepted by God. Paul knew that before God, he didn't have to perform this Jewish ritual. But Paul was willing to give up his freedom in Christ to demonstrate that what the Jews were saying was untrue about him. It served another purpose. He was taking honorable steps to prove by his actions that he respected the Jewish law and the Jewish people and that he wasn't rejecting his own ethnic and cultural background. You and I have to live lives of integrity and excellent character as a foundation for defending our faith. Our actions must say something about our Christian convictions. The saying is true, actions do often speak louder than words. And so it's clear that we need to live lives that are pure and free from sin in order to be a witness and defend our faith in Christ. 1 Peter 3.16 says, Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Paul was being slandered. And at times when we're being slandered, perhaps, we need to make sure that we're able to hold a good conscience by living lives marked by honorable, godly actions that prove what we really believe. So if gossip is common in your workplace, you should be known as someone who won't participate in those discussions. Or if crude jokes are common amongst your school friends, you should be known as someone who won't join in or laugh with them. 
or if lying and manipulation are common among your non-Christian family, you should be someone who only tells the truth and won't manipulate to get your way. And beyond that, you and I perhaps should be people that at times give up our freedoms in Christ in order to demonstrate that we're followers of Jesus. That's what Paul was doing here as well. For, so, for example, if you're trying to reach out to your strict Muslim neighbor and share the gospel with them and invite them into your home, you may want to give up your freedom in Christ to have pork in your house. That would be a reasonable step for you to take. A small price to pray for perhaps having the opportunity to share the gospel with someone who's not a believer. Our honorable actions in every part of our lives serve to defend our faith in Christ. And in doing that, we're defending Christ himself against those who would attack him and dishonor him. Brothers and sisters, our actions matter. Are there changes that you need to make in how you're living in order to defend your faith in Christ? The rest of this section of text reveals what the Jews' response was to finding Paul in the temple near the end of his purification practice. It's ironic given that he was in the temple and they were claiming that he was disrespecting the temple. Their response was anger, violence, more lies about him. They cry out that he's an enemy of Judaism. They say he's speaking everywhere against the people, against the law, and against this place, which was the temple. Those are all lies about Paul. The crowd was determined to kill him. And he's only saved by the Roman soldiers who are alarmed by the disturbance. They bind him in chains. And just like the prophet Agabus had prophesied, they carry him to the barracks in order to question him to find out what in the world was going on. As I reminded you when we began, taking honorable actions to defend your faith in Christ pleases Christ, but more, more trouble may still come. Standing on the steps with, of the barracks with the crowd demanding his execution, Paul did something else to defend his faith in Christ. He gave a truthful testimony. That's the second point this afternoon. A truthful testimony. We see that in 21 verse 37 all the way to 22, 21. So as Paul stood on the steps there of the barracks, the crowd was crying out, away with him. And it's no accident that that's exactly what John tells us the crowd demanded when Pilate asked if he should crucify Jesus. In so many ways, Paul is walking in the footsteps of Jesus. In Paul's defense, first he describes himself as a one-time zealous Jewish leader, Next, he recounts how the Lord Jesus interrupted his journey to Damascus in a shocking encounter on the road which blinded him and resulted in his appointment as a servant of Christ. Then he tells how Ananias, a devout Jew, mind you, in Damascus, took him in, gave him his sight back, and confirmed his appointment by God and how he must be a witness to everyone about the Lord Jesus. He also told about how Ananias told him to be baptized as a symbol that his sins were washed away by Christ. Last, 
Paul told them a true testimony that's not recorded anywhere else in the scripture. He recounted a vision that he had while in the temple where the Lord ordered him to depart Jerusalem because the Jews would not accept his testimony. Instead, he was to go far away to preach the gospel to the Gentiles. In many ways, Paul's defense is a model for us in telling our testimony as well. He tells who he was before he came to Christ, how he was living his life against God's will. Next, how Christ called him and gave him faith and repentance. And last, how his life had been changed. That's a great model for you and I when we share the story of how we came to faith in Christ. Tell people who you were before you became a Christian. Tell them who introduced you to Christ and what you understood the gospel to be when you first heard it and believed it. And tell them how the Lord has changed your life. Tell them how you're following him now. It's a great outline for a testimony. When was the last time that you shared your testimony of coming to faith in Christ? Our relationships with one another should regularly involve us telling our testimonies of faith. You know, I don't get tired of hearing your testimonies, and I know so many of your testimonies. For one, it encourages one another. And there's nothing much more encouraging than hearing how the Lord called each of us to himself. It's a miraculous story for each one of you. No matter whether you came to faith at the age of four or whether you came to faith at the age of 44. But more than that, when we tell our stories of coming to faith, we prepare ourselves to tell non-believers around us. And those times just might be times when we're being persecuted. Again, we think about 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 15 and 16. Be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. And you should remember, perhaps, from the context of that verse, here in 1 Peter 3, he makes it clear that he's telling us to do that when there's persecution and suffering. Not just when a friendly person asks you, tell me how you came to faith. If you don't make it a habit of telling one another your truthful testimony, you'll not be ready when you're being persecuted. As you eat meals together tonight or maybe later on this week, ask each other, tell me how you came to faith. Remind me. The more we make this a regular part of our gospel conversations with each other, the more we'll be ready, like Paul, when we're attacked, to give a truthful testimony. Did you notice how Paul framed his testimony, especially for his listening audience? At least two themes color how he told his testimony. First, he, he came to faith as a faithful Jew. He was a faithful Jew. He goes out of his way to mention his Jewish credentials. He reminds them that Ananias was a faithful Jew. And it was the God of our fathers. In other words, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that called him. And as well, he's countering their claims that he's become anti-Jewish. 
in fact. It was God's initiative that brought him to faith in Christ. God did it. He didn't go and seek it. He was struck down on the road. He was appointed by Christ without seeking an, seeking an appointment. And it was God's idea to send him away to the Gentiles, not his own. In the gospel, God is the one taking the initiative to seek and find us. When we were enemies of his, he sent Christ into the world. Jesus is the God-man who died on the cross as a substitute on our place. He took on himself the punishment that we deserve so that we might become his true servants. That's the message that God has given us in the gospel. And that message requires a response on our part. Repentance and faith in him. You can't simply hear it, you must respond. We have to choose to turn to him. And when we do, like Paul, we too must make a public profession of faith in him through baptism, just as Ananias invited Paul to do in obedience when he said, rise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on his name. That's how a person becomes a Christian. If you're not a Christian, you've heard the message just now from my lips. Will you respond in obedience to the Lord Jesus? Your eternity depends on it. Paul acted honorably and he gave a truthful testimony in defense of his faith in Christ. And yet the angry crowds again railed against him. And they seemed to be angered particularly by his declaration that God had sent him to preach the good news to the Gentiles. They were so angry about that. They were God's special people, not anyone else. Oh, how they had misread the scriptures, brothers and sisters. Do you remember the Old Testament passage that we read from Isaiah earlier in the service? God was prophesying through Isaiah that it was too small a thing for Jesus Christ, the Messiah, to be a savior for Israel. No, he was to be a savior for the nations as well. And that's what made them angry. Pride and hatred had blinded them to the compassion and kindness of the Lord. Beginning in verse 22, as the crowd called for his death, the Roman soldiers brought him to the barracks and they prepared to actually torture him to find out the reason why the Jews wanted him dead. Once again, Paul sought to defend himself and this came in the form of a wise choice. A wise choice. That's the third point this afternoon. Flogging was a brutal form of Roman Punishment sometimes used to extract information from people. A flog was a long whip with multiple strands of leather that had bits of glass and metal and sharp bone tied to the ends of it. One theologian says of the flog, if a man did not die under the scourge, which frequently happened, he would certainly be crippled for life. Paul was tied and his arms were stretched out so that he couldn't protect himself. And then just as the centurion was about to begin the whipping, Paul made a wise choice, which the Lord used to spare his life, at least for the time being. 
He asked if it was lawful for a Roman citizen to be flogged without a trial. Paul knew the law. It was unlawful. Paul had likely received his citizenship from his father in Tarsus. It was a birthright for someone born to a citizen. He had mentioned his Roman citizenship up to this point, perhaps because he wanted the opportunity to defend his faith with his words before the crowd and perhaps to persuade someone to believe him and to trust in Christ. The Romans were shocked. They might be the ones condemned if they flogged a Roman citizen without a formal condemnation after a trial. Immediately, they withdrew in fear. Paul's wise choice made at the last minute kept him alive and able to continue defending his faith in Christ. When we're interacting with the hostile world around us, we too must make wise choices. We need wisdom from God to know when to take a stand, when to fight the battle, or when to wait for another day. At times, it might be wise to avoid the battle. Sometimes Paul fled from a city when there are plots against him. Other times he stayed and kept preaching the gospel boldly. Paul had wisdom. And you and I need that same kind of wisdom to know how to be faithful in all kinds of different situations. The more time we spend in Scripture, the more times we seek godly counsel, the more times we pray earnestly for wisdom from the Lord who graciously promises it in times of trial, the more then that we'll learn how to keep in step with the Spirit in all kinds of troubling circumstances. Are you being persecuted in your workplace? Maybe with your family, even. Or maybe in your school or your university. You need wisdom to make choices about how to respond. When to speak up in your own defense. When to keep quiet and to press on. When to leave a hostile environment. When to take advantages of your rights and privileges that are afforded to you in any given situation. There are thousands and thousands of different situations that you might find yourself in, but there are no quick and easy formulas for figuring out how to respond in any of them. Certainly, you shouldn't sin. But you need wisdom. Wisdom is acquired over time, walking with the Lord, being in His Word, learning from those wiser than us, and spending time in our knees asking for it. And brothers and sisters, this best happens in community, in the church. I don't know of anyone who has called themselves or lived their life like a lone ranger Christian who becomes wise. It just doesn't happen. Paul was alone in this situation, but he had grown wise over the years in the community of the church. Are you seeking to grow wise in the Lord in this church community? More than anything, it will prepare you for those seasons 
if you are attacked or persecuted, and perhaps when you find yourself alone and in need of making a wise choice, talk to one another about the situations that you're facing. Pray together about the things and the decisions that you're having to make. God will give wisdom to you individually, and God will give wisdom to us collectively as a church. Paul knew that he would come under pressure and attack in Jerusalem, and yet the Spirit had led him there. And when the attacks came, he sought to defend his faith in Christ, hoping that some of his countrymen or anyone who saw and heard him would be persuaded that Jesus is the Lord. He honored the gospel, and he honored the Lord Jesus himself when he did that. Honorable actions, a truthful testimony, and his wise choices. We believe in the Lord Jesus too, and we can defend our faith in Christ by doing the same. May God help us do that for his glory.